You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Welcome to the Audio Information Network of Colorado's High Country News Program. I'm KG Greenspun, reading from the February edition. Last week we started Glen Canyon Revealed, What Comes Next for Lake Powell by Craig Childs, and we'll finish this story right now. David Wegner, one of the founding members of the Glen Canyon Institute, is retired from the U.S. House of Representatives, where he served as a member of the senior staff and specialized in water, energy, climate change, and science. He recently visited Lake Powell, and when he saw a 50-foot-tall cottonwood standing where he'd previously known nothing but water, he hugged the tree, a place he believed to be lost, a place he never expected to see firsthand, had returned to the world. He sees the drawdown as an incredible ecological opportunity. After two dams were removed from the Elwha River in Washington, we spent millions on reshaping the rivers, millions on replanting, he said. We have spent zero on the restoration and recovery of Glen Canyon. It is reestablishing with absolutely zero investment from us. It is, without doubt, erupting with life. On a domini beach, alongside rabbit brush and rice grass, we found a flaming green cannabis plant. Maybe someone dropped their stash over the side of a houseboat in 1985, letting the seeds sink into an anaerobic depths of sediment, where they were preserved until the day when the plant could sprout and its chunky buds glint crystalline in the sun. The newly exposed land falls within the 1.25 million-acre Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. According to the 1979 General Management Plan for Glen Canyon, the water portion of the lake is managed as recreation, whereas the land, for the most part, is considered a natural zone and treated as wilderness. Most of the emergent canyons and landforms are wilderness by default. Not all of the conservation news from Glen Canyon is glowing, especially when viewed from downstream. The dam's penstocks, which take up water from Lake Powell and send it through the hydropower turbines, are no longer drawing from the cold, deep tank of the reservoir. Instead, they're pulling from just below the surface, and that warmer water is heating up the river below the dam, making it more hospitable to the non-native sport fish that live in the reservoir's upper layers. Now more of those fish are being flushed through the turbines and surviving to compete with the Grand Canyon's carefully curated native species. Fish biologists are especially concerned about the humpback chub, which is already hanging by a thread. Meanwhile, Glen Canyon Dam is still holding back a mountain of sediment, starving Grand Canyon beaches and other streamside habitats of material that would otherwise have gradually flowed downstream over the decades. 
downstream river levels throb and dwindle in accordance with the dam and its electricity demands, not seasonal rhythms. The incoming sport fish are one more insult to an already abused system. Recovery on one side of the dam is disaster on the other. Could the lake ever cover Glen Canyon again? It may come back up a few feet here and there because of variability in our water supply, David Wagner told me, but I'm not hearing from anybody who looks at the existing data and the structural deficit that occurs from over-allocating a diminishing supply that the water will ever come up. I took the question to Brad Udall, a senior water and climate research scientist at Colorado State University's Colorado Water Center. How many heavy winter snowpacks would be needed to put Powell back on the rise? Five or six really big years in a row, Udall said. Given the demands on the system, that's how much it would take to turn this around. While Udall celebrates the return of Glen Canyon and is as likely to hug a tree as Wagner, in his twenties he worked as a river guide on the Colorado. He is chilled by the possible ramifications if Lake Powell drops below its current levels. I think there's a real reason to keep water above the penstocks, Udall said. Below that, he added, is dangerous territory. The danger lies in the engineering of the dam. The penstocks are positioned more than halfway up the lakeside of the dam, 333 feet above its base. If water levels drop too close to or below the penstocks, they will no longer supply water to the hydropower turbines. Levels have recently drawn near enough to the penstocks that air bubbles pulled from near the water's surface might begin to collapse or cavitate as they pass through the turbines. The resulting pressure waves can tear apart a tunnel's innards, eroding concrete and threatening the dam's integrity. During the floods of 1983, cavitation caused the interior of one of the dam's spillways to disintegrate. By the time it was shut down, the passage was vomiting boulders and concrete. Ninety-six feet below the hydropower penstocks are four tubes designed to release excess water through the dam during wet years, which might provide a last-ditch route for water if the reservoir continues to drop. But Udall said these bypass tubes were never designed for constant use, and he worries that they will not reliably move water downstream. Udall's hope for now is to keep lake levels where they are, even as snowpack declines. Current water restrictions for downstream users, even those enacted under emergency drought policies, are not enough, he said. Less water must leave the reservoir. He sees a greatly reduced Colorado River below the dam, enough for boating, but with no more big flows. Cuts need to happen this year. More than are being recommended. We need to protect that power pool at Powell. If water can no longer pass through Glen Canyon Dam, the Grand Canyon will all but dry up 
and Lake Mead will rapidly dwindle. Seven states will lose the hydropower they receive from Glen Canyon Dam. Over the centuries since the Colorado River Compact ignored indigenous rights to the river, 17 of the basin's 30 federally recognized tribal governments have established legal rights to water below Lake Powell, but many are still battling for access to that water and for a long-denied role in basin negotiations. If water stops flowing through the dam, these sovereign nations may never see their rights fully realized. This river is our namesake. It is our life. Amelia Flores, Mojave, chairwoman of the Colorado River Indian Tribes, said in testimony to the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs in March 2022. And if we do not control our water, history tells us that others will. In the summer of 1998, when I rode baggage rafts through the Grand Canyon, the flow in the Colorado River often exceeded 20,000 cubic feet per second, and Lake Powell was nearly full. By the time Cheyenne Yazzie, a 30-year-old guide who grew up next to Glen Canyon Dam in Page, Arizona, started working in the Grand Canyon in the late 2010s. Typical flows fluctuated between 12,000 and 18,000 cubic feet per second, and outflows from the dam have continued to decrease. Now when we have 12,000, she said, I think we have so much water. The rapids are getting rockier, harder to navigate, and less conducive to rafts made for big water. Yazzie said that the rumor among her fellow guides is that next season's flows could drop to 3,000 cubic feet per second. Yazzie was born on the Navajo Reservation, and her Diné ancestors have lived in and around Glen Canyon for centuries. She was raised with Lake Powell, camping on its shores with her family and riding skidoos to Lone Rock, a landmark that used to stick up from the water like a giant thumb and now stands on a barren desert plain. Yazi wants Lake Powell back, but she feels torn. It would be amazing to see the untouched Glen Canyon, she said. It would be amazing to see the water go up, because so many people rely on it. When she was a kid, she said the lake's water rose high enough for boats to pass under the sandstone archway of Rainbow Bridge. But she knew that, according to Navajo tradition, it was disrespectful to go under the arch. One should go around it. In the mid-1970s, three Navajo Nation chapters, along with several individual tribal members, unsuccessfully sued the Bureau of Reclamation and other federal agencies over Lake Powell's imminent flooding of burial grounds and other sacred sites near Rainbow Bridge. Now the water is a mile away and the bridge stands alone in the desert, its old self. Yazi's mother, Joanne Yazi, was born not far from Page in the community of First Windmill, Arizona. She recalls visiting Powell in high school in the mid-1980s when water levels reached their peak. Releases roared from the dam, swelling the river to more than 100,000 cubic feet per second as it entered the Grand Canyon.
She went to the lake when her kids were little, and over the years she watched its level fall, but until recently the water was still high enough to feel abundant. Now, she said, it feels different. Places where we used to go swimming, we can't, because there are canyons and cliffs, she said. She sees a world out of kilter and sees what's happening to Lake Powell as part of the dislocation. In the Navajo culture, we think we're really in deep trouble right now, she said. Like her daughter, Joanne Yazzie wants to see Lake Powell at a healthier, higher level. The lake does help the people, she said, not only us, but down the river where it's even drier. We have to think of the whole picture. At dawn, Eric Balkin and I sat in cathedral in the desert, listening to the waterfall echo within its scalloped sandstone. Sunlight was half an hour from touching the highest cliffs, six hours from reaching us. Sitting on a sandy slope of eroding lake deposits, we looked up to where not long ago the dual pontoons of houseboats would have motored above our heads. With his voice resonating inside the cathedral, Balkan asked, What would we have to sacrifice to refill the reservoir? Are you going to let Lake Mead go dry and then jeopardize the water infrastructure in the lower basin and their water security? That's a hard sell. Lake Mead's the more important reservoir. The lower basin includes all those with a legal claim to Colorado River water below Glen Canyon Dam. Tribal governments, the National Government of Mexico, and the state governments of Arizona, Nevada, and California. These governments and their people need their water, Balkan said, and both Powell and Meade are holding it. The decision to keep Lake Powell, or let it go, he said, will have nothing to do with recreation or hydropower, much less this waterfall and its maidenhair ferns. It's going to be a decision about water storage and allocation, he said, and nothing else. Last spring, the Interior Department set new emergency guidelines for dam operations on the Colorado, reducing releases from Glen Canyon Dam and increasing releases from reservoirs upstream. These higher reservoirs are now bottoming out, bridge pylons standing dry so that Lake so that Powell can survive another season. The federal government has ordered all of the Colorado River Basin states to dramatically cut their water use or have it done for them. Balkan said the Bureau of Reclamation, if I had to bet money, they're going to hold back more water in Powell in the next few years and they're going to cut down delivery downstream. They're already doing Phil Powell first, de facto. They're so afraid of operating below power pool, not because of hydropower, because of water delivery. They're going to do everything they can to prop it up above minimum power pool until they physically modify the dam. For Balkan, salvaging this reservoir is the wrong decision. Operating at these levels in a drying climate is unpredictable and dangerous, and it involves curtailing downstream deliveries. If we're rethinking the delivery obligation, why aren't we rethinking the dam? He asked. We keep walking down the path of decisions that were made in the past, even if they're based on flawed assumptions. 
Why not re-engineer Glen Canyon Dam, let the river run free, and put the water in Lake Mead? He sees his future as almost inevitable. Having two reservoirs, Mead and Powell, both atrophying at once, is like having too many bank accounts open with too little money in them, he said. In this time of triage, Balkan thinks we need to focus on Mead and let Powell go. A Datura plant with creamy white blossoms grows between the legs of a half-buried beach chair. A sunken boat turns to bones. If you dig down deep enough to reach a layer spike with metal pull tabs, you'll know it was deposited in the late 1960s when the lake was filling. As the dam's floodgates closed, archaeologists scoured Glen Canyon, collecting what they could, relocating artifacts when possible, and documenting thousands of sites ancestral to at least seven modern tribes. The predominant rock art found here, which is 3,000 to 5,000 years old and mostly sunk beneath the reservoir, is called Glen Canyon Linear, a skeletal checkerboard style depicting animals, humans, spirit beings, and geometric forms. These indigenous ancestors lived in a sprawling desert sanctuary of rivers and springs. Their rock art style extends for a hundred miles or more in all directions, and the center of the style, its type locality, is the glen. The exploitation of the river and the canyons has also destroyed much of its human history. Three-quarters of the ancestral sites within the reservoir are thought to have been destroyed, often by the lashing of boat wakes, or by visitors who could step off the deck of a speedboat and into the door of a once inaccessible cliff dwelling. As the reservoir filled, graffiti rose with the lake level, and higher and higher rock art sites fell prey to vandalism. What endures in many places are toeholds, in a landscape of cliffs and precipitous falls, first peoples pecked ladders into the rock, vertical paths to cliff dwellings and granaries. While skimming a sandstone wall in the main channel with Stella, his dory, we came upon a set of ancient toeholds out of the water for several months at most. As we slowed, water from a passing speedboat bucked around us. The toeholds led to an alcove that must have once held a rock-and-mortar structure, long since erased by visitors and waves. Falling from these steps would have probably meant death, a hundred-foot tumble past ledges, slopes, and cliff bands. Today it would mean plummeting into the water. A story from the Hopi, direct descendants of these stair-makers, says that the previous world flooded, filled with water all the way to the top. It was a catastrophic end, a drowning. The people who escaped made it to the current world, in some tellings rising on a reed-boat, in others climbing a ladder. They found their way up from the flood and arrived in a dry, sunlit land above. This is how the first people 
came to the world. Stella bucked and sloshed on the waves. We held her gunnels, enchanted by this ancient stairway, each hole big enough for a few fingers or toes, just deep enough to nick the rock face with shadows, where the cliff went under water, the holes turned green beneath the surface, then black, then disappeared. They looked like the tip of a ladder leaning against the rock, away up from the dark. And now, under reportage on the move. In a warming world, California's trees keep dying. That could doom the state's plan to fight climate change with the help of nature by Maya L. Kapoor. Ecosystems aren't landscape paintings so much as mosaics, with different pieces that grow and change over time. In healthy forests, patches of recent disturbance, such as fire or logging, sit alongside patches of grasses and shrubs, fast-growing trees and centuries-old mature forests. But these ecological patterns require a climate stability that no longer exists. Due to human-caused climate change, California's forest mosaics are vanishing, according to a study published in AGU Advances last July. The state's forests lost almost seven percent, or just over one thousand seven hundred square miles of tree cover since 1985. That's an area larger than Yosemite National Park. In particular, forests in California's south, southwestern mountains lost 14% of tree cover. John Wang, the study's lead author and an earth system scientist at the University of Utah, said that at the current rate, in a hundred years, we will have lost almost 20% of our forests. That's like all of Southern California's forests being gone, or all of the Southern Sierras being gone. Thousand-year-old forests now get only a decade or less between fires to recover. California's forests are never going to get a chance to become old-growth forests again, Wang said. Instead, they may have more of a permanent, stunted state. And... Aridification means that forests once considered fairly fire-resistant, such as old-growth coastal redwoods, can no longer rely on wet weather conditions for fire protection. The dramatic loss of many of California's giant sequoias, ancient trees that live with fire for thousands of years, particularly troubles Wang's co-author, James T. Randerson, an earth system scientist at the University of California, Irvine. You can extrapolate out what's going to happen to the forest, Randerson said. It's horrific. To track how California's forests changed over the past few decades, researchers used machine learning, training, and algorithm to identify vegetation types in satellite images taken every few days, dating back to 1985. The algorithm differentiated between three causes of tree deaths, wildfires, logging, and drought. As it turns out, far more of California's tree cover is disappearing due to wildfires than from drought or logging. The sheer amount of data that this study provides is important, said Philip Higuera, 
a fire ecologist at the University of Montana who was not involved with the research. The ability to quantify changes not only from fire, but from forest dieback and from timber extraction, to be able to do all of those three at once is really valuable because it helps place them in context throughout California, Higuera said. To be clear, wildfires remain a natural part of healthy forest ecosystems across the West, and controlled burns are important tools in forest management. But California has a fire deficit. Colonizers stamped out indigenous fire management practices, so fuels keep building up, leading to ever more destructive conflagrations. Today, the astronomical cost of living in California's cities encourage people to move into forests, and fires follow, and those fires, combined with drought, are quickly changing California's ecosystems. With effective fire management, some northern California forests might eventually grow back, but in the southern mountains, where forests are dying even without fires because of drought stress, chaparral, may replace trees permanently. One limitation of this study is its time scale. 35 years is a long study from the perspective of using satellite data, but in the context of forest development and ecosystem change, it can still be relatively short, Higuera said. Wang and Randerson also cautioned that this research doesn't model future fire recovery, so more work needs to be done before drawing conclusions about whether these ecosystem changes are permanent. Meanwhile, California is proposing an ambitious plan to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. Right now, Wang said, the carbon offset market is really focused on growing trees, but his data suggests that California may have to lower its expectations. We might be moving to a paradigm of saving what's there, he said. In On the Move, Maya El Kapoor writes about how the climate crisis is shifting life in the West. And that's our time for today. Thank you so much for joining me. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.